uh, trying to digest that. We're at generationally low interest rates. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we're in the midst of a pretty volatile political season too. So there's a lot to try to digest. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, just for the people who are tuning in for the first time to our talk with Fraser Rice, um, Fraser Rice is a president of Walt Actually LLC, um, had a lot of experience with wealth management and uh, might just leave uh, the introduction up to you now, Fraser, uh, to our listeners who will join you maybe the first time. Sure. Uh, so I am a reformed lawyer. I went to law school and practiced law for a couple of years, and I worked for a couple of uh, financial institutions over the last 18 years. Uh, a lot of experience dealing with clients and structuring wealth and talking to them about their investments and their taxes. And uh, I wrote a book called Wealth Actually, where I tried to congeal a lot of that uh, knowledge and experience, and I just try to help uh, help people help people keep their wealth intact in uncertain Perfect. times. Yeah, and definitely for anybody who's tuning in now, we've discussed about your book in our last podcast and kind of made a, a broader introduction. But uh, not to lose time here, maybe we can uh, focus more on the topics that are ahead of us, as you mentioned uh, before. Uh, since last time we spoke, uh, kind of the the markets have uh, changed. The, the environment in the markets is significantly different, I'd say. The last time we spoke, it was uh, we were in the middle of the boom. Uh, I guess the boom is still technically on, but with all this coronavirus stuff, it looks, it looks a little bit different. Do you have any comments on this or... Sure. Uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, sort of paths to go down. The first one, I'm going to start with uh, the interest rate environment, which I alluded to a few minutes ago. Uh, we are at generationally low interest rates. The 10-year, uh, I think it closed below 70 basis points and uh, it represents uh, a lot of the political and uh, sort of... <coughs> areas where uh, our political system is trying to address difficulties uh, either by the coronavirus or otherwise trying to bolster certain parts of the economy. And uh, we're at the real bare end of a 30 to 35 year uh, general decline in interest rates. And that's something that uh, everyone has been predicting over the last five to eight years that interest rates would go up. And a lot of people who've been making those predictions have been completely wrong. Uh, I look at it right now and there, there is the possibility that interest rates could go negative. Uh, but I look at where the environment is right now and I, I, we, we, just haven't seen anything this low from a U.S. interest rate environment, uh, certainly not within my memory or probably even my lifetime. And it's an interesting area for people to try to analyze because a lot of the expertise uh, that goes into analyzing a rising interest rate environment, I think, is is somewhat out the window right now. Uh, I'd also add that 
President Trump uh, has discovered how to put his thumb on the scale as it relates to interest rates and that he has a lot of influence over the Federal Reserve and what they do. Uh, the greatest example of that most recently being the half point rate cut uh, in response to the coronavirus uh, epidemic. And uh, it's something that's it's, it's difficult to analyze because we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, part two is uh, sort of the equity volatility that we're seeing now, which is something that a lot of uh, sort of traditional Wall Street hasn't had a lot of experience with, uh, at least since 2008. And uh, I think what, what's challenging for a lot of folks, especially the asset allocators of the world, is to try to understand what's causing the uh, the stock volatility, uh, depending on whom you speak with, there is the notion that uh, the stock market is sort of into its 12th year of a bull run since 2008. Uh, is it, it is, was it looking frothy and was the coronavirus sort of the thing that pushed it over the edge and people started to look at uncertainty uh, from an epidemic perspective and using that as an excuse uh, to sell out of stocks or to take a different look at valuations. And then there are other people who say, well, you know, the coronavirus could be, you know, much more of a, I don't know if existential threat is what I mean, but it's more of a, um, more of a path to uncertainty that we really have trouble getting around. Uh, as we sort of step back and, and compare between past epidemics, whether it's HIV in the early 80s, which took a long time for that information to get out, to avian bird flu, to Zika, and so on, we're, it would indicate we're still in the early innings of processing of what the, the coronavirus looks like. Um, yeah, that, that um, one follow-up question, I would say, first of all, with regards to the interest rates, um, so, in my mind, uh, one thing that, that happens with this coronavirus is that the risk profile of the equity market is going up because of the unknown, um, unknown consequences of the coronavirus and we don't know uh, what exactly what effect it's going to have. Do you think that actually if the Fed lowering the interest rate, which is basically making money cheaper, is the appropriate... Um, will have appropriate effect. Um, many, many are arguing that this is not an issue of cheap money, that even though if you have cheap money at the bank, uh, if, if everybody has a contagious virus outside, you won't go out and spend money, you know? Right. Well, I, I, uh, it, it's a great question. I'm not sure that uh, additional access to cheaper money is uh, the solution to the impacts that the coronavirus may or may not have. Uh, that said, I, I think the bigger issue in many ways uh, for businesses, small business, medium business, large business, is the disruption in supply chain and logistics that the coronavirus could represent. Uh, if you subscribe to the notion that China is in the midst of a significant slowdown uh, and that you know the parts necessary for iPhones are going to be more difficult to get or that uh, people in China aren't going to be shopping for U.S. goods uh, or that northern Italy is going to just be taken offline for a while where they try to figure out you know sort of how to manage the coronavirus impacts uh, all of those things that reverberate through uh, the supply chain and ultimately the economies uh, both abroad and in the United States uh, access to cheaper capital doesn't necessarily fix that supply chain problem I'm not sure you can throw money uh, especially borrowed money at that uh, from a 
quote unquote fix it perspective. Uh, what it might do is buy time uh, for uh, various businesses to weather the storm. I, I almost equate this uh, for those people who live in uh, snowy regions uh, to potentially a preponderance of snow days where uh, the economy in many ways could be taken offline for a period of days or weeks or maybe even months, depending on how serious this becomes. And then when, when and if it gets addressed, uh, the economy comes back online. Uh, there's been a lot of waiting around and inability to function or consume that takes place, and there will be pent-up demand uh, to be able to uh, sort of get the economy back rolling again. Uh, all of which is probably an oversimplification. Uh, however, uh, I, I have faith in the idea that uh, once the various uh, countries and economies and companies uh, get aligned around combating the uh, coronavirus and uh, dealing with it, that that's going to be a major, uh, a major step forward in terms of progress. I'd also add that, uh, and I'm referencing a friend of mine, Dan McMurtry, who really sort of verbalized this a lot better than I ever did, uh, but a lot of these epidemics take a long time to normalize. And by that, uh, it, it's getting over the uncertainty of what happens in an epidemic uh, as, it, as it comes down from on high and how to think about something like avian bird flu or HIV, there's so much uncertainty. Uh, and in this case with the coronavirus, you're dealing with flu type situations, which are extremely contagious, but at the same time have a much higher death rate as right now versus the regular flu. And people don't know how to deal with that yet. And it's going to take a period of weeks, days, months, possibly years, uh, to be able to understand what the impact of that is going to be on society. And even if uh, a vaccine or some other treatment measures are put to bear, uh, that's something that the economy is struggling with. And that, that leads to uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to flight to safety. And, uh, and that's why, I, in my opinion, stock markets are volatile right now. I, I got a question for either. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that it's that stock exchanges and then general equity researchers are trying to understand markets and and it's getting hard for them and harder to understand them and then you also mentioned that it's also hard for you so would you say that the previous stock tumbling of of the of yeah of the previous week was something you saw coming or is it also increasingly harder for you to to not impart this halo effect and try to attach price movement or try to uh, connect events and price movement every single time and then out of a sudden there is something happening and you thought this would move something but it doesn't and then on the other hand out of a sudden the the stock race uh, starts when the i think that in the previous week the factor could be that the cdc i think increased the risk from high to very high was that something you thought okay this is definitely going to cause market movement or was that also surprising to you and it's also getting increasingly harder for you to to foresee that uh, I think anybody who tells you that they were able to foresee the impact of the coronavirus on the markets and the volatility of the last couple of weeks is, is uh, kidding you. Uh, there may be the one in a million person who uh, has a particular uh, knowledge of uh, how viruses and pandemics work and may have been able to transmit that 
that knowledge somewhere. <laughs> but I think that's I, I, I think it's very difficult to sequence uh, the coronavirus to the uh, to the movements of the stock market. Um, I think you, we also. I, I think many times it's taken a long time for the markets to get used to Donald Trump and his use of Twitter and what that does to the markets. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, continues to be an evolution for those people who trade uh, in the markets. And I draw the distinction between trading versus investing, uh, trading being much more short term. Uh, so I think the I think the industry is generally having trouble dealing with that. I think that uh, anybody who sort of indicates that they know where the stock market is going currently, at least until there's some stability in uh, the coronavirus situation, or at least some sort of path or trajectory to a solution to it, is is I, 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 I take that at face value. Um, I think where it, where it really hits the road for clients is reminding them that uh, they have their assets allocated uh, for a reason. Hopefully they've communicated their goals and their income needs uh, to advisors like me or to others who are out there uh, you know, trying to help them remain calm in a, in a world where, you know, CNBC and so on is, you know, sort of, predicting the, I mean, they're not predicting the end of the world, but certainly uh, uh, bringing excitement <laughs> into the news cycle as it relates to this. Uh, and it's just reminding people that that these types of things happen. Uh, if you go back, you know, Zika, avian bird flu, H1N1, uh, there seems to be some sort of pandemic every five or 10 years uh, with and, you know, e Ebola even, and then if you go all the way back to HIV, uh, and uh, the the timelines and the solutions to them vary, and it, it's but it seems like we seem to pull through and and get get through in good shape. That said, I mean that's not a prediction that coronavirus isn't going to have a major impact, and that there aren't going to be a lot of unfortunate deaths or other uh, healthcare issues related to it. But it's a it's a clarion call to try to try to remind people to stay calm and to remember why they are invested the way they are. Uh, and in this case, if you've got a, a shock to the system like like the like the coronavirus is having with the markets, uh, th this is a good test case to be sure that that you're able to withstand shocks like this because I could analogize this to uh, being uh, somewhat like a terrorist attack or uh, a natural disaster or something like that that has a major impact on the markets that you couldn't really see coming. Uh, but that definitely has impacts on the portfolio and ultimately could have an impact on what you're able to spend for your lifestyle. Right. And uh, we definitely, we call these <clears throat> for our listeners, we call these events, the Six Sigma events, basically like 9-11, uh, I guess this uh, virus outbreak, there is, it comes out of nowhere and you can't really predict it, but still as an investor, you have to be prepared for it. Um, but I want to comment just from a, like a human's perspective. I think that this also shows us, um, if you mentioned Ebola and you mentioned other more serious diseases, it just shows you how quickly... Um, and we commented on this in our previous episode about the coronavirus, how quickly a virus can spread in today's world from China to, I don't know, Massachusetts in like 10 days since the outbreak. And if this was something really deadly, you know, we would be in very, very big trouble. Um, but still, 
the the impact I guess on the on the system in general. I think I read somewhere that somebody posted on Twitter that basically with the current ratios, you know, two percent of people dying, and I think seventy percent of people needing to be hospitalized. Um, New York would need 250,000 beds uh, because a lot of people have to be hospitalized and it currently has 64,000 beds just um, in terms of like hospitals and um, clinics and stuff. And then this just shows you why the the insecurity and what, what would be the worst case scenario where uh, you actually can't get treated for something else because there's too many patients and stuff like this. Um, uh, but I wanted to go back. You mentioned uh, that investors... Uh, flight to safety, they go to safety and to save assets. Can we maybe explain this to our listeners who are not uh, as educated and don't know what they uh, what that actually means? Sure. Uh, so many times people who are invested in uh, equities uh, and bonds, but let's say equities to start, and they, uh, they see uh, big red flashing numbers and uh, big drops and the market's down 3% today and 4% today. It goes up 2% tomorrow and then back down 4%. And for people who are not used to seeing uh, those types of numbers and are more used to seeing uh, what's been traditional in the last 12 years, which is a steadily, steady upward climb, uh, most people don't like to lose money. And when they see volatility like this, uh, many people sometimes throw in the towel and say, you know what, this is not for me. Uh, safer asset classes, uh, you know, whether it's cash or, in my opinion right now, short-term bonds, high-quality bonds, uh, things that should not go down uh, in, in difficult times, uh, most people feel comfort in that and they don't want to see their balances uh, go up or down. Uh, they'd rather just see them hopefully steadily grow and maybe take interest from it. Uh, that's a flight to safety where people uh, just cannot stomach the risk of losing assets. And if they start hearing the news often enough or it becomes loud enough and they start really paying attention to their balances, they get particularly scared. Uh, in my opinion, what that sometimes leads to is a horrible phenomenon, which is when you buy uh, buy high and sell low. Uh, when things get difficult, they start and, and you and you catch the market at a particular dip. Uh, that could be the worst time to sell. Uh, it's a it's a definite. Uh, it, this is the time for a good advisor to step in and say, "Look, here is here's what we discussed before. These are your long term goals." These are the assets that you have to fulfill the go those goals. Over time, uh, we expect returns in the equity markets uh, to be this. And you know, the consensus, I think, is that equity markets are supposed to go up over a very long time horizon at, say, 6 or 7%. Uh, bonds are supposed to be around 2 to 3%. Uh, based on those two assumptions, and they are assumptions, and they also do not go, it doesn't, it's not linear. They don't go up 7% per year every year. We had a great year last year, it was up nearly 30. And this year we're, you know, we're, we, we're, I think we're down a little bit. So it's not uh, in total lockstep. Uh, but the idea is to just remember what your long-term goals are and what your long-term time horizon is and to not get too beat up over what's happening in the short term and in a sense, timing the market when, really no one knows anything about what's happening. Uh, that to me is a, uh, it's an activity or a, uh, a tactic that is uh, misinformed and, if, and somewhat counter to the long-term strategy that many people put together with their advisors. 
Uh, I find it infrequent that people have some sort of edge over the rest of the market as it relates to some of these exogenous events. Uh, and so for the most part, uh, people staying the course, maybe doing a couple of things to take risk off the table if it help makes them, helps to make them sleep better at night, uh, that that's good. But to, to whipsaw from being fully invested to going straight to cash, uh, that creates another type of risk, which is um, it, it's very, very, very difficult to be able to pick the bottom out. And and if you're uh, sort of buying high and selling low, and you know you, you could miss the very important times when the market runs back up, uh, and then you can unfortunately lock in times when uh, the market goes down and you aren't able to uh, stay away from that. Um, yeah, um, one question I would have. Uh, as a wealth manager, how do you prepare your clients' portfolios or what would be maybe an advice? How do you, what's the answer to these events or volatility? How do you best prepare the portfolio to kind of sustain this damage? Um, is diversification the answer or something else? Well, hopefully, uh, I mean, diversification is in many ways always the answer uh, and a well-crafted portfolio is, should be diversified ahead of time uh, so that when uh, the market inevitably uh, jumps around, either because the, the uh, economies are in recession or you have these, these sort of Six Sigma events, as you described them, come up, uh, that your whole portfolio uh, doesn't take a full hit. Uh, but ultimately, I think the idea is let's assume you're diversified and you're not taking the full hit from a portfolio event. Uh, the idea in many ways, I think, is to make sure that people have enough cash to be able to support their spending needs so that they don't have to make any major adjustments to the portfolio uh, in order to uh, you know, sort of fund their rent uh, or otherwise pay for their lifestyle. Uh, the, the, the one thing I would tactically think about for people who are just have unbelievable concern about where they are and that may have had a portfolio hit is to make sure that they have enough cash in the short term to weather any storm, uh, and, and then to sort of reevaluate where you are from an asset allocations point of view. Uh, I think the, it's bad outcomes are more frequent when people are doing large scale reallocations of investments uh, right in the middle of, of highly volatile events. Um, I think many times history has borne out that uh, if you're able to ride it out a little bit, uh, you, 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 you don't put yourself in harm's way by uh, selling at the absolute low when people are freaking out the most. Um, I guess Warren Buffett was somebody who said, uh, you know, when there's blood in the water or when people are panicking at their most, that's, that's when he's ready to step in and buy. <laughs> and many times he's, he's in a position to do that because he's kept a cash position uh, to take advantage of opportunities like that. Uh, so, you know, for a lot of people I talk to, I think the idea is to just remind them of what their goals are, remind them of their time horizon. Um, and if they are in a mode where they're getting close to having to take down assets in order to fund their lifestyle, try to take off as much risk as possible in a, in a gradual sense so that they're able to do that and, uh, uh mitigate a lot of the, uh, short-term whipsawing that can take place when things like coronavirus or a natural disaster or a terrorist attack or something like that takes place. Just a quick question. Uh, speaking uh, uh, from your experience as an equity researcher, would, would you say that this new cryptocurrency called Bitcoin, not to tune you anymore, 
is that is something you would consider a new safe haven because it seems to be completely uncorrelated to anything? It, it, did it become a new tool, a handy safe haven tool next to gold for you when you advise clients or, or w w are you not a friend of, of Bitcoin? Would you always say better don't do this? Uh, oh, great question. Um, so would I call Bitcoin a safe haven? No. Uh, I think there is a lot between the cup and the lip as far as Bitcoin goes. Uh, it, it's had a very nice run up. It's extremely volatile in and of itself. Uh, and so to call it a safe haven, I think is, uh, I think it's a drastic overreach right now. Uh, mm. I, I like some of the concepts behind it. Uh, I like the fact that it's, the, you know, there's a blockchain uh, sort of undercurrent and infrastructure around it. And so I think it's very novel and interesting. Uh, one thing that bothers me a little bit about it is that you are relying on the confidence uh, in the underlying algorithm to provide the security for the Bitcoin and therefore the scarcity and then therefore the value of it. Uh, and I, the, conceptually, I think it's it's stable, but at other times you hear about exchanges falling apart and people losing their hard drives. That, <laughs> that scares me a lot. Yeah. Uh, I also like the idea of having the uh, the backing of a country underlying a currency as well. Uh, now, over time, uh, currencies become devalued as uh, as inflation increases, and you know that that has its that has its issues too. But what it ultimately does is it provides stability uh, over a long period of time, even if uh, even if over a very long period of time, currencies ultimately devalue. Uh, now, against that backdrop, do I think Bitcoin is a bad investment? Um, I would say no. Uh, I'm not saying it's a good investment either. I think it's something that's that's taking a long time to be understood. Uh, I would not. I would not be making huge bets in it, especially for those people who really don't have much understanding uh, of, of the underlying technology beyond it. That said, I don't think it's inappropriate to maybe take a tiny piece and invest in it uh, just as a, uh, as a gesture, uh, more of a thought project. I think it's fun to track and I think it's a great way to learn about how things work. Um, but to analogize it to a safe haven, uh, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm not there. Uh, it's not correlated to stocks and bonds. Um, it's not really correlated to anything at the moment, but I, I don't think that's a, uh, uh, I don't think there's a causal link between the underlying value of Bitcoin and what's going on elsewhere in the market. And I, I, I wouldn't treat it that way. Uh, my, my final point on it would be to say that, uh, I, I, I think Bitcoin will have quote unquote arrived from a confidence level, uh, a, when the traditional custodians are able to take it on and deal with it at the moment, I believe fidelity is one of the only ones that does that. Mm -hmm. Uh, second of all, I think that the, uh, when people are willing to be paid in Bitcoin for real estate, uh, that to me is the other major marker when I, when Bitcoin has quote unquote arrived. Uh, that will tell me that the confidence in it as a currency and as an asset class will be uh, that that is a, it has come to widespread adoption, and uh, then viewing it as a quote unquote safe haven may become more appropriate. But we're not quite there yet. Um, uh, just one thing, uh, one one question. Basically, what you mentioned for real estate, do you mean in in terms of um, let's say? <clears throat> 
Bitcoin becomes a, a transactional kind of vehicle where uh, it basically you want to buy a house, you buy one Bitcoin, and you buy a house with this instead of basically paying thirty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. That's that right, yeah. uh, and and the reason why you know I think one of the big issues with with that is the fact that you know if I were, it, it's funny because I I have on my Google alerts uh, real estate for Bitcoin <laughs> because I that that's one of my pet theses that I try to test out and keep an eye on, and there are a variety of Swiss chalets that are on sale for Bitcoin. And I think there's some properties in Miami and maybe one or two in New York that have it and some other scattered results. Uh, I, I think it'd be crazy for many people to accept Bitcoin for something like real estate, uh, uh, you know, single family homes or anything like that, because you know the, the value of those assets, the, the real estate that is, is fairly stable. And the value of Bitcoin can fluctuate wildly. And I, I think it would just be it, it, the, the, the fluctuation in values between those different kinds of assets is so great that I, it, to me, I just would not be comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, there are many people who very much believe in it and that it's going nowhere but up. But I, I'm, I, I'm not there. Um, I, the, a lot of people that I talk to uh, who have some experience with it uh, aren't there either. And I, I just sort of look at it and say, you know what, I, this is something that needs more experience. Uh, we need to, it needs to become a little bit easier to transact. Uh, and it needs to, it needs to get away from the reputation as being this thing to skirt the uh, financial system uh, and become more integrated with it so that people can use it and feel more comfortable with the value that underpins it. Yeah. And not to get too political, but I, be, I believe that in this kind of, determination of Bitcoin's value, I, I don't believe that it's only the question of the open markets because at the same time, I feel like you have two major players, US and China, and I feel like the narratives that come from Bitcoin becoming a currency uh, mostly come uh, from China and kind of China also want, wants to adopt its own crypto. Sorry, uh, I have a cold. <coughs> I apologize to the listeners. <coughs> but Hopefully it's not coronavirus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're talking about coronavirus and I'm suffering over here. <laughs> <coughs> no, basically, um, it seems like in, in terms of US, it wouldn't be in their, <clears throat> in their own interest for, uh, for uh, cryptocurrencies to become like the ma major transaction value since you have such a big domination of dollar and basically 88% of all transactions in the world going through, through the dollar, right? Uh, so I see a trend here where... Now you can you can basically trade Bitcoin futures in Chicago, and mm -hmm. there, and there is a kind of a narrative where cryptocurrencies are oh yeah it's a store of value, and I feel like it's a little bit more pushed here than in China per se. China is kind of adopting a different aspect where okay we're going to make a government cryptocurrency and we we can use it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, <laughs> I can't really speak intelligently about China and, and its cryptocurrency policy. But at the end of the day, if, if, if cryptocurrencies help reduce the, the points of friction for transactions and make it easier for people to conduct business, I think that's where the world is going. So if crypto, if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general are, are pushing along that line, uh, that's what's going to happen. Uh, I will say in the United States, there's a bit, there's a, there are a couple boxes on the recent uh, tax forms that people have to fill out saying, have you conducted any transactions in cryptocurrency? And they do that because you know, ultimately the United States wants to uh, A, understand the impact of cryptocurrencies and B, uh, levy taxes on 
uh, cryptocurrencies as well and any gains that happen to take place on it. Uh, I think in the United States, uh, whether they have their own crypto version of the dollar or whether they incorporate Bitcoin or whether they are able to happily coexist together, Ultimately, if you're a United States citizen, you're taxable on worldwide income, and you're either on the grid or you're not. And if you're on the grid, uh, Bitcoin is going to be one of many tools to transact business. If you're off the grid, uh, you're going to be fully off the grid, and I, I think it's going to be difficult to hide from the IRS. Yeah, you don't wanna, you don't want to play hide the seat with the IRS. <laughs> no, that's that's a that's a that's a short road. Yeah. Uh I got a question uh, back to the coronavirus and China and then the economic impact. Mm -hmm. How would you say how severe is the long-term economic impact on the, on the People's Republic of China in terms of them having to now mobilize resources and spend more resources to make up for all the losses and uh, more and more companies <clears throat> facing cash problems, they are actually telling the banks to make more money cheaply available, but they don't. So especially medium-sized, smaller-sized businesses are facing cash problems that might go bankrupt. And in general, also the Chinese government having to now reallocate sources and spend more money to properly allocate money to all the smaller governments and communities. Since we saw they, they were not properly able to fight back and fight back in time because, because the Wuhan region didn't have proper means available to, to fight back. Would you say that this will have an impact on the Chinese economy for the next two years only and then they have recovered or maybe for the next five years and then they're back and, and up and running or and i would say and i would just extend this question to the global point as well uh, sure well so let's start with at the top you know from the thirty thousand foot level which is it can't help uh if you are devoting resources toward uh solving a pandemic uh and Uh, those aren't resources that are going to R&D or uh, other developmental programs. And you're, you know, you're trying to sort of shore up the health of your, uh, the health of your citizens and uh, try to restrict uh, what could potentially be a significant loss of life and increase in healthcare costs and things like that. None of that is, I would say, quote unquote, uh, it's not a economic multiplier, which is what you would sort of hope with government investment. Uh, so that's, that's sort of step one. And as we get into the granularity of it, I confess, I, I, I'm not sure what the numbers are, uh, as it comes out of China. Uh, it sounds like, uh, that they are getting the spread of the pandemic under control. I don't know what that means exactly. Um, but let's assume, and, and this is an assumption to be sure, let's assume that they are getting things under control and that they are, Uh, sort of turning the corner and uh, getting back to being on their uh, on all four paws, economically speaking, uh, they may be able to snap back quickly on it uh, if if indeed the pandemic is under control and uh, they aren't having to expend a whole lot more in terms of resources in order to get things up and running. What we described probably 20 minutes ago was the idea that in New York and, and in other states that uh, the pandemic may not be in control and there aren't enough hospital beds and people need hospitalization and that the, the costs may soar and that that may be a Uh, that may be a real governor on uh, economic growth. Uh, I don't take it for granted that the, those types of conditions are existing in China. Uh, so 
Uh, it's it's very difficult to predict, and I think the numbers and the uh, the severity of the impact of the coronavirus are still we're still in the early days of understanding of what that's going to be. I, I, I and this is really more of a gut instinct than anything related to data. Uh, yeah. I think we're at a point right now where uh, we have we have a pandemic that's uh, very contagious. Uh, we have a very low understanding of who actually has it at the moment. Uh, by virtue of the fact that there hasn't been a lot of testing uh, in the United States. And we know that the uh, the fatality rate is you know, somewhere in the one and a half to 3% range at the moment. And this is before any treatments have, have come to pass. Uh, and so this is something that's not, not, that's not in our normal field of vision. Uh, we're used to either sort of Ebola types of situations, which have a very high uh, death rate, but a, uh, but are not very contagious, mostly because people die very quickly and they, you know, they can't spread it quickly. Or you have an influenza type of situation where it's very contagious, but not many people, I mean, I shouldn't say not many people, lots of people die from it, but the percentage is a lot lower. Uh, so we're, so the coronavirus is somewhere in between. And that's something that has not been, uh, hasn't been really been socialized that well yet. And uh, the tricky part with China is that the numbers that are published by the government and, uh, that are, you know, relied upon by the markets generally, you know, I, I think the trust factor in that is, is not as high as it, as it is in other, in other parts of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say the United States is probably right among the most trustworthy of numbers that are put out there. And, uh, and so for people to try to guess what's happening in China based solely on a couple of things that the government releases is a little bit tricky. Um, you know, in the United States, we, we don't really know what the impact of the coronavirus is either, but I think there's sort of a pretty good, uh, I, I guess, sense that it's not because we're lying about our numbers is because we don't have our numbers handy and we, you know, we haven't conducted the tests that that connotes a different level of incompetence, but uh, but it's it's a little bit different than sort of reading reading numbers submitted to us by uh, you know a country on the other side of the world with a different way of doing things and handling their business. Uh, and so, to, to, as I look at it and say, you know, is everything going to be back to normal in a year or two years or five years? Uh, I have faith in the notion that there going to be a, there's going to be a lot of mobilization uh, around the world to try to get this solved because it is scary and it and it impacts a lot of people and uh, the death toll is not uh, I, I think it's at a percentage for people who could uh, uh, contract this that it's going to create massive casualties uh, especially if you think that anywhere from sixty to eighty percent of the people in the world may end up contracting this. Uh, but, uh, that said, um, you know, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I, I would say it's going to take, it's going to take a while to socialize this and get people used to the concept that, that this disease may be a, a, you know, that a, that it's no joke, uh, and then B that it's something that can be dealt with and, and be sort of dealt with the, within society, uh, to the point where you know we can start making good policy decisions around it. Yeah. And maybe to be a little bit more business specific, 
we already see some some airliners already going broke uh, because of the impact of the virus. Um, many of us have witnessed whoever traveled that uh, airplanes are half half empty, half full. And uh, do you have any opinions in terms of the impact on specific businesses and industries? What kind of impact this might have? And I know you're not the coronavirus expert, but just uh, since we're on the, this topic, maybe ask. Well, I, I think people are going to err on the side of safety. Uh, we've seen that uh, South by Southwest, which is a major uh, tech event in Austin, that's been canceled. Uh, they're starting to talk about scenarios where major sporting events in the U.S. are going to be canceled. Uh, not canceled, excuse me. That They're talking about uh, maybe having them go on, for instance, March Madness, which is the big college basketball extravaganza, but that they're, they're going to really uh, try to think about whether it makes sense to have large groups of people uh, uh, in one particular area. Uh, lots of study abroad programs, especially in Italy, have been canceled and they've gotten people back to the United States uh, on that front. Uh, so yeah, it's a big deal. And so people are rethinking travel. Uh, anecdotally speaking, I think a lot of businesses are really rethinking business travel as to why and how uh, any of that makes any particular sense. Can you do it over, a, uh, can you do it over a video conference or can you do it over something else? Uh, I, so to that end, I think there's going to be, there are going to be major, at least short-term ramifications. Uh, certainly the airlines are, they're going to have a hiccup on things. Uh, you're about half to a quarter full of flights. Uh, hotels stand to lose a lot of business tourism, certainly cruise lines and so on have to overcome uh, a lot of bad news and bad headlines. Uh, and then you can see things like video conferencing, uh, technology, uh, that uh, those types of businesses, uh, could stand to really, uh, gain from this as people start to say, you know, do I really need to go from New York to LA for a two hour meeting or in, is that face to face contact really worth it in this particular environment? And could that change travel generally? Could, uh, events that, that take place in large groups, could that be rethought? And does that ha now happen in a TV studio? Uh, all of that's up for debate. I think, uh, I, again, I subscribe to the notion that there, oh, there are going to be a lot of resources poured into figuring this out. I think people are going to start getting used to, uh, what a new normal might be as it, as it looks, uh, as the coronavirus becomes part of our lexicon and we figure out what the long-term ramifications are, uh, I, I, people will still need to travel. I think business will still need to be conducted uh, and airlines are still going to be needed. Uh, but there, there could be some choppiness as people uh, figure out where they, where they are needed uh, going forward. Just, just uh, one last question from my side. Um, was there uh, some sort of Eureka effect for you, for, for your books? that uh, as, as traders uh, and wealth managers are trying to understand this and since this also has been a, a virus and an almost epidemic uh, condition for a long long time was there something where you where you said okay for the for the next time this happens hopefully not too soon and hopefully not too severe uh, i'm gonna buy zoom i'm gonna sell an airline what, what was was there a eureka moment where you noticed ah this is actually something new i learned from this Uh, hmm. Great question. So in general, I'm not a big uh, stock by stock picker. I'm more of, you know, sort of advise on asset allocation. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, I, I sort of go back to that long term time horizon. Uh, is, is, is the client's portfolio geared toward 
uh, making sure that their long-term goals are met. Uh, that said, from a trading perspective, uh, I, I, I would say that the big, the big thing in my mind is just to sort of, if you're trying to pick winners and losers uh, along those lines, whether it's Zoom or whether you know it's get out of airlines or something like that, uh, I, it's a tough point. It's a, there is no great eureka moment. I, I think that uh, that's an area where I'm probably the least comfortable in terms of a trading component. I, I get very I get very cowardly uh, in placing chips on the table uh, to try to take advantage of these short-term types of moves. Uh, my eureka moment really comes back when you say, okay, when I'm analyzing coronavirus and then I look back at the different other diseases that have taken place over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, what has the, what is the ultimate market uh, impact been? And that's where I come back and say, uh, society up until now and hopefully through now uh, has has figured out a solution to a lot of these things. They've devoted resources toward research. They've devoted resources towards healthcare, um, and ultimately the the general skew of the markets uh, continues to go up over time. And so, for me to try to sort of guess uh, up or down as to which company is going to uh, profit or not profit off of off of this short term event, uh, that's probably not where I'm best. Uh, uh, sort of best equipped to help people on that front, and you know, I, I think for I think for the vast majority of people that don't cover these things very closely or, or don't pay attention to them that closely, I think that that would be my advice too: is to just you know take 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 these spasms uh, as a as a time to reevaluate your overall plan. Uh, make sure you understand what you're worried about. And by that, I mean, what, what is your long-term plan? What are you trying to fund? Making sure you have enough cash to be able to fund it so you don't have to make any rash decisions in case things continue to go haywire. And then uh, try to proceed accordingly. All right, Fraser. Um, well, that was, a, that was kind of a great repa uh, recap of all um, kind of the talk that we had today. Um, and it was again great to talk to you um i would ask maybe if you have any last words for our listeners what would it be um and again we can also say what, where they can find your book when they can find your podcast as well you have a podcast i know that so great uh sure so i i mean i guess the in the final analysis i would say uh, these are these are uncertain times right now. Uh, you've got volatile politics. You've got a pandemic that people are trying to understand. Uh, you've got uh, you've got people trying to figure out where the economy is going. You know, we've been at the end of uh, you know we're twelve years into a bull market. Uh, we've got extremely low interest rates. All of that type of uh, all of those types of factors. Uh, it, it, the, the biggest thing I would add is, is, is that this is not the time to really panic. It's the time to really sort of take a breath, step back, re, re sort of reiterate what your goals are and what you're trying to do. Look at your portfolio and the plan that you put in place six months ago, five years ago, et cetera, is probably very similar to the plan that you would put together today. And, uh, you know, obviously if life changes and you've got some other needs or fewer needs, maybe there's some adjustments to make. Uh, maybe if you feel better taking a little bit more of a cash position to make sure that your needs are funded and that you're not going to have to sell something when you don't want to sell it, that might be something to think about. But I, I would, 
I would try not to panic uh, economically anyway uh, on on the various factors that are going on in the news cycle. Uh, and I would I would almost get away from the TV and go back to the newspaper and and try to read a little bit more long form uh, on what's going on as opposed to getting peppered with uh, media, either TV or social media wise uh, from sources that aren't really uh, that smart on things uh, and sort of taking a step back, I think can really help out. Uh, now, where can you find me? Uh, you can find me at wealthactually.com or FraserRice.com. Uh, my podcast is on both and my book can be found on Amazon. Uh, you can get downloaded on Kindle or you can get a hard copy. And uh, again, that's uh, wealth actually and uh, FraserRice.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I guess politics is a whole other topic that we can uh, touch on the, the next time you're on as well. But thank, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, coming to our podcast again. And it was really a pleasure. Uh, it's fun to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Perfect.